You're listening to the Acts, How the Gospel Changes the World series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. We'll be in the book of Hebrews tonight in our 21st Century Guide to the New Testament. Last week we looked at the book of Philemon, and the book of Philemon is a short book. It's a wonderful story. It is relatively simple to understand. It's, it's just a great portrait of what grace looks like when it's played out in the lives of, of believers. And you can really sink your teeth into it. And I say that because this book, we will be overviewing a book that, for me, is, it, it's none of those things. It is not simple. It is not short. Um, theologians and commentators have devoted a great deal of time trying to explain some of the difficult passages, uh, trying to explain some of the Jewish foundations of the book, and there is not a huge, like, obvious consensus of how to answer some of the difficult passages. And so that's not to say that they're not answerable and that there aren't reasons for it. It's just to say that it is a difficult book. The truth is, Hebrews was one of the books that, it, even, even way back in the early days, they, it was one of the last books that was accepted into the, the New Testament canon. Now, God knew it was going to be there from the beginning. He inspired it. But it's one of those books that it's, it's just seemed to cause some debate and discussion since it was written. That's not to say that I do, don't love the book. It's not to say that it isn't an amazing, wonderful book that we can all glean many great truths from. In fact, m- many of the greatest and most quoted passages of Scripture regarding the deity of Christ, uh, regarding the supremacy of Christ, regarding the inerrancy and the authority of the Word of God, regarding the sufficiency of Christ's atonement and the model by which we should live the Christian life are found in this book. It's an incredibly important book, just full of good theology. One person said it was the book of Romans for the Jewish mind. And what they're saying there is that it's just so full of theology and it would would show the Jewish mind what salvation is. Because the Jewish mind would have this foundation of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system and would understand what all of that meant. And so then when they open up Hebrews, Hebrews does a beautiful job of explaining the Old Testament, of explaining how believers ought to read the Old Testament to see Christ in the sacrifices, in all of the traditions that they did, how those things point to Christ. And so it is a wonderful book. It teaches us how to view the Old Testament as believers. And so I hope tonight to pique your interest in this book. I hope that you'll go home. Certainly we cannot study it all. I, I want you to go home and study it and read it this week. I want you to get excited about it. I believe that in the future, Pastor Dressler is planning to do a series on the book of Hebrews. And so if you get excited about it now, imagine how wonderful it would be when we get to the point where we're actually doing a series every week on it. it. It's a great book. And so let's pray and then we'll get into it tonight. Father, we love you. Lord, I thank you for this book. Lord, I thank you for a book that challenges us, that, that makes us think deeply. Uh, Lord, a book that um, reminds us that your death on the cross was incredible. Lord, that is everything that we need for salvation, that the entire Old Testament pointed to that, that time you'd give yourself. And Lord, that everything that came before it was just, it wasn't enough. Lord, it was just a foreshadow. Um, Lord, I pray that we would leave here newly amazed by the cross and trusting fully in, in salvation found there and living our life in light of it. Uh, Father, we love you. And we pray that you'd speak to our hearts tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The author of the book is unknown. 
unknown. Now, there are many people that, that are sure that Paul wrote it. Uh, in fact, from the year 400 to 1600, just about every book that was written about Hebrews would call it the epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews. And if you open your book right now, if you have a, a title, it's very possible that your, the title of your book will say the epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews. In fact, my Bible, it says that, okay, right there. And so there's a lot of people that, that have believed that it was Paul that wrote Hebrews. Here's the thing. I don't think he wrote it. Okay? If I was to guess, I would say it wasn't the Apostle Paul. And I'm, I think there's some biblical reasons why Apostle Paul maybe didn't write it. Okay? And we'll start with this one. Um, the vocabulary and the stylistic differences in the book abound. And, and so as much as when you look at the theology of the book, it is completely congruent with what Paul said throughout all of his letters. It all makes sense. It all falls in line. And so you might look at that and say, listen, the theology is so perfect. It's so close to what Paul wrote. It's such in line with that that maybe it's clear that Paul wrote it. But the thing is, when you look at the actual literature, when you look at the Greek used, um, Paul was a very brilliant theologian, but he was not the best author in the New Testament. Okay, that would certainly go to Luke or the writer of Hebrews. Because Hebrews is written beautifully, a, a literary work and theological work. Okay? Now, I'm not saying Paul's writings weren't literary geniuses. I'm just saying that this is, it was written very eloquently. And so there's one of the reasons, that there's stylistic differences, that there's some vocabulary used that's different. Um, also, it's interesting that in all of Paul's letters, he begins with a, a self identifying greeting. He says, I'm the Apostle Paul, you know, servant of Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm writing to this person. In the book of Hebrews, there is no such greeting. We don't find it anywhere there, and so it would seem like this was how Paul did things, and he didn't do it here, uh, and so maybe it wasn't him that wrote it. It's also significant that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 12, Paul makes it clear that the gospel that he received was given to him directly by Jesus. Okay, we know he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. But in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he seems to indicate that, that this author, like the, the, the people that he's writing to, did not see Jesus himself, did not receive the gospel directly from Jesus, that it was passed on to him. And so that would tell me that probably it wasn't Paul that wrote that because it wasn't directly from Jesus. Finally, the Apostle Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles, and Peter was the apostle of the Jews. We see this in Galatians 2.7, in Romans 11.13, and a handful of other places in the New Testament. It, it seems to indicate that Paul, though it would make sense to send him to the Hebrews, God chose to send specifically to the Gentiles. doesn't mean Paul didn't minister to Jews at times. doesn't mean he didn't have a heart for them. He certainly did. But it meant that his primary focus of his ministry was to Gentiles. And so this is a book that's written primarily to Jews. And so... There are some good reasons why not to believe Paul wrote it. Um, in fact, D.A. Carson, who's a notable scholar today, said, Today virtually no one defends Pauline authorship. Now that shocked me because I think there are a lot of people that, it seems to me a lot of people still try and defend it, um, but that number of scholars is, is dwindling. Okay, I, I recognize this is more of interest's sake than, than really important. Maybe you're like, this is really boring, move on. Um, and I will very shortly, okay? Here's a couple other options before we move on. N number one, Apollos might have written it. Okay, Apollos is, we're, her, we're told 
by Luke that he is an Alexandrian Jew. He was very eloquent and mighty in the scriptures. He spent some time with Paul. He was affiliated with Paul. He probably knew Timothy. And so just from all of that, we, we might say, hey, Apollos would be a possible legitimate author. Another author could be Luke. Hey, Luke might have written it. Aquila and Priscilla have been offered as possible authors. Uh, Silas has been offered as a possible author. Epaphras, uh, the deacon and evangelist Philip. And, and the one that I like to think wrote it, but have only one reason really to do so, is Barnabas. I would love it if Barnabas, because I just love the character Barnabas, and so if he wrote a book in the New Testament, I'd be really excited about it. Now, there is some reason behind thinking that. For one thing, he was with Paul often, and so it makes sense that, his, that the, even the way he expressed theology would be very similar because they spent so much time together. The second reason is a man named Tertullian wrote in 200 AD, so, so within 150 years of the writing of the book, that Barnabas wrote it. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that he did. It just means that somebody a long time ago thought that maybe he did. And so there are many different ideas uh, uh, one of the early church fathers, Origen, said this, as to who wrote the epistle, the truth is known to God. And we don't know. It's an unknown authorship. All we know is it was a Greek-speaking Jew, who was a devoted Jew who was converted to Christ. Um, we find that in the book, the numerous quotations of the Old Testament are all from the Greek Septuagint. And so he's a Greek-speaking Jew. The date of the book, again, it's an, it's an estimate, but I think a good estimate is AD 67 to 69. The reason we stop at 69 is because the temple was destroyed in 70, and when the writer, when the author of Hebrews speaks of the sacrifices, he speaks of them in present tense, as if they're ongoing. And it would make sense that he would mention the fact that the temple's destroyed and they're not happening anymore if it was after AD 70. So he probably wrote it before then, but also at the end of the book, he mentions the fact that Timothy is out of jail. And so we said that Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy between 65 and 67 AD. And so at that time, Timothy wasn't in jail. And so if Timothy went to jail and then was freed from prison, then that would put it sometime after 67. Okay, so 67 to 69 is our best guess at the date. The audience is to a second generation Jewish believers. They would have been very familiar with the Old Testament. He constantly is quoting and speaking about things that Jews would understand. In fact, for a Gentile Christian like us to pick up the book and try and understand it without having a Jewish foundation is very, very difficult. This is a book where understanding the context and understanding the Old Testament and having a framework is vitally important for us to understand the book properly. And so Jewish believers would have that foundation. And so it was written for them primarily. In this book, they are constantly warned not to revert back to Judaism or to impose Jewish legalism on the gospel. And so he's writing so that they don't, they don't slip back into the Judaism that they came from. It's possible it was written from Italy, and it's possible that it was written by a man who had some Italians around him. What he says at the very end of the book is, they of Italy salute you. And so it's either he's saying, I'm in Italy, and the people here in Italy with me salute you. Or he's saying, I'm somewhere else, but there's some Italians here, and, and so the people that are here that are, that are from Italy, they salute you. So again, we don't know where it was written from. Um, you're probably thinking, like, why does he care about all this stuff that we don't know? I just find it interesting. 
Um, but let's, let's get on to the purpose, because that's where it really gets important. The purpose of the book, to present the superiority and sufficiency of Christ as the mediator of God's grace and to call believers to radical faith in him. He writes because he wants them to understand that Christ is superior and that he is sufficient. That he is the mediator of God's grace. God's grace comes through Jesus Christ. And because of that is true, because of his superiority, because of his sufficiency, because grace comes through him, that calls us automatically to radical faith in him. And when I say radical faith, I don't mean like crazy, weird faith. I mean real faith lived out in our lives. That's all radical faith is. Radical faith is simply actually acting like we believe what we say we believe. And when we do that, we are, we are radical compared to what most people think of as people that have faith. Real faith lived out. And so you, you have to understand that, that as we look at that purpose, the context to which the author was writing was to Jews who, for a while when they first joined Christianity, everything was, was okay for them. I mean, there was always persecution, but the persecution didn't really start to get bad until about AD 64, because for a while, Christians were under the umbrella of Judaism, according to Rome. So when, when the Roman government looked at Christians, they saw a sect of Judaism. And the Jews were given special religious rights just because they were, they were Jews. All other people in the empire were expected to worship false gods, were expected to worship the emperor, but Jews got a special pass, a free pass. And so for a while, the Christians got to take part in this free pass, but in AD 64, Nero started persecuting Christians. And he blamed the fire that happened in Rome on Christians, and so a lot of governors started persecuting believers. And so these Jews that came out of Judaism are now experiencing a great deal of persecution. And maybe they start wondering, them, wondering to themselves, well, what am I doing? I mean, wasn't Judaism originally founded by God? I mean, why can't I just slip back under that umbrella, maybe get some of the safety that goes along with that, and still worship God? Why do I need to step out and be a Christian and be so radically different? My family doesn't like it. Okay? The people in my community doesn't, don't like it. I, I'm going to end up being persecuted for it, so why not just slip back and still worship God just in a slightly different way? And so he's writing to this group of people, He's trying to encourage them that that's not an option. That's not a valid option, despite the persecution. He says that Jesus is superior. And I want to walk you through some of the arguments that he gives here. Because when you look at the book of Hebrews, it's important to realize that what you're reading reads very much like a sermon. And so what he's doing here is he's presenting an argument, and then he's making application to your life immediately. And then there's an argument and then application, an argument and a warning, and an argument and an exhortation, and they're all coming together. But read it all together and read it as though it's a sermon. And honestly, when you do that, it really helps you get this book. And so this is, this is kind of, we'll walk through some of his arguments here. The first argument that, that he makes is that Jesus is the revelation of God, the new revelation of God. It came in the Old Testament through the prophets, but now fully through Jesus Christ. Verse 3, and then in verse 4 he says, so Jesus is much better than the angels. He starts out saying Jesus is better than the angels. And, and this is going to be his theme through the whole thing. Jesus is better than blank. The first thing is the angels. He says that he has a better name, he's been given a better name than the angels. That he is the son of God in verse 5. In verse 6, it talks about angels worshiping him. 
In verse 8 it says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. If that's not ascribing to Jesus Christ's deity, full deity, I don't know what is. He says to the Son, Thy throne, O God. Clearly saying Jesus is God. In verses 10 to 12 of chapter 1, he's saying that Jesus is the creator and the unchanging one. And then in verses 13 and 14, he talks about Jesus having authority at the right hand of God and that the angels are there just to minister to believers. So it's just that contrast of angels just ministering to believers, Jesus being the one that has all authority in heaven and earth. What an incredible contrast. Jesus is so much better than the angels. But he pauses then in chapter 2 and he says, here's a warning for you. Here's something to think about. If this is true, then this is maybe how it applies to you. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 says, Therefore, because Jesus is so much better, we ought to give more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Let's be careful about what we've heard. Let's be careful about what we know to be true about Jesus. Let's not let that slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto them, unto us by them that heard? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. What he's saying there is, if when the angels speak, it carries a measure of authority, if what the angels says is important, we should listen to it, we should heed what the angels say, how much more should we listen to what Christ said? The gospel that he presented for us, it is of the utmost importance. And we're not going to escape if we neglect that salvation. So don't. Don't be crazy. He goes on in, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. See, here Christ was willing to come as a man. He was willing, though he was so much greater than the angels, to make himself lower than the angels. Why did he do that? He did it so he could die for us. He did it so that we could come back into a right fellowship with God. He's making this argument. There's nowhere else to turn. He's so much better than them. And he was so even though he was so much better, he was willing to die for you. He goes on in chapter 3. It says, Jesus is better than Moses. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, it says, For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, when the Jews thought about Moses and Joshua, they thought about the epitome of, of wonderful servants of God. There are tales told about how smart and brilliant and wonderful Moses was. Okay? He was their hero. And he's saying, Jesus was so much better than Moses. Why? Because he's not just a servant who obeyed. He is the son. He goes on to explain that there's, that there's this household. And in the household, you have some servants. But there's a big difference between the man who is this servant working in the household and the son who ultimately owns the household. And that's Jesus. He's the son. So much better than Moses. But in the midst of this, he gives them a warning to be careful that they don't act like those unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness. See, he's talking about Moses and he says, hey, listen, do you remember the unbelieving Israelites? Do you remember how they kind of, their faith, they just didn't believe God to take them in the promised land? Remember that? 
Don't be like them. Okay? Their problem was lack of faith. They fell back. They weren't just automatically a part of the deal. They had to have faith and go on, and they died in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. And in the midst of this warning, we have one of the greatest verses in the Bible about the Word of God. And I think it's significant that it's in the midst of this warning. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, in the midst of giving a warning and talking about the judgment of another nation because of unbelief, he says, Listen, the Word of God is quick, it's powerful, it's going to judge your thoughts and intents of your heart. You're not going to get by just because you pretend. You're not going to get by just because at one point you said that you had faith in Jesus. Okay? The Holy Spirit knows, God knows, the Word of God knows. And so be very careful that this is real for you. He goes on in chapter 4, starting at verse 14, to give another argument. This time it is that Jesus is better than the Aaronic priesthood. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 say, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our profession. For we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Just wonderful verses. Those verses are built on the fact that, that Jesus is our high priest. And so for the Jews, this would mean a great deal because they saw Aaron first as a priest and they saw the Levitical priesthood and, and they were the ones that would go to God on their behalf. And so what, what the argument that he's making is, that's what you had before. You had it before where you had these men who were fallible men who would eventually die and be replaced, who would go to God on your behalf one time a year. It was just this continual thing that had to happen. And then they would go to God for you. And he says, now you have Jesus who is so much better than them that now you can go directly to the throne of grace at any time. Why would you move away from that? Why would you move from Jesus, the perfect and best high priest, from the order of Melchizedek, which he's, he's going to make that argument in a second, which is better than Aaron and better than the Levitical priesthood. Why would you move from that back to the Levites who once a year, they'd go to God, they'd cover sin for a while. It was never complete. It was never finished. There's no reason to do it. It says they were better than the Levitical and the Aaronic priesthood. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 27 are great verses. Let's read those. This is why Melchizedek is better than Aaron. He says, And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. Yeah, there was many of them, and they died. But this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make his intercession for them. You see the contrast? These guys die. He lives forever to make intercession for his people. Verse 26, For such a high priest came, became us, who is holy, harmless, 
undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice for his own sins. See that? See what he's saying? They had to go, and before they could even do anything about your sins, they had to offer their, a sacrifice for their own sins. He says, this is not our high priest. He didn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. It's, and then for the people's. For he did once when he offered up himself. That's it. And it is finished forever. What a great high priest. I think it was on in chapter 8. It says, Jesus is better than the old covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by which, by much also he is a mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Now it is important for us to realize that this, this new covenant, the covenant of grace, is established on the foundation of the old covenant. Okay, God is not wiping out everything he promised and everything he said and everything he did in the Old Testament and saying, I'm going to wipe the slate clean, let's start again with a fresh covenant. What he's saying here is this, is this is a new and better covenant. It is built on the foundation of the old covenant and it would be crazy for us to think otherwise because the entire old covenant is pointing toward the new covenant and everything in it was designed to, to make the new covenant make sense to us. Like the sacrifices then. He just used the argument for us. Those sacrifices for a time covered sin. Short time. It's pointing to the one who would ultimately come and cover sacrifice forever. His sacrifice would cover sin forever. And so this is a new covenant. It's built on the foundation of the old covenant. It's a better covenant. Chapter 9. He moves on and says, He is better than the old sanctuary. And he gives a description of the physical tabernacle that the Jews had. And if you remember this in the Old Testament, the physical tabernacle was, was the place where God's spirit would dwell. You would, you would sense the presence of God there. You could see the presence of God there. It was a wonderful thing. It was just an important part about all of Judaism was the fact that they had this place where God was. They could see the Shekinah glory cloud. And he says, but you have a place, you have something that's now better than that old tabernacle. Chapter 9, verse 9 says, which was the figure for the time then present. That was just a picture for that time to point to something better. In, in chapter 11 it says, But Christ become a high priest of good things to come by greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. And then he goes on to explain what that means. So now you have all, the presence of God, all of God dwelling in, in a human person who walks among us. How much better is that? How much better is that now that we have that man, God, as our high priest? And he goes on to explain why that's so much better because he's, he's better than the sacrifices. Chapter 9, verses 12 to 14 says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of, of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much better? So much better. How foolish it would be for them to slip back, to serve anything else, to go anywhere else. 
says Jesus is superior. In light of the fact that Jesus is superior, he wanted them to understand that Jesus is sufficient. He is not only so much better than all of that, he is all you need. Now, a few years from the writing of this letter, the temple would be destroyed. Sacrifices would cease and have ceased up until this day. Never start again. Okay? Now, I think that God had the Holy Spirit write this letter to the Jews as a precursor to, to, expl- to get them ready for what was about to happen. He wanted Christians to know that Jesus wasn't just better than what was going to be destroyed, he is sufficient. That none of that was needed and the fact that it's gone, it doesn't matter. It can be gone. It's no longer required for anything. Jesus is sufficient. Hebrews 9.27 says, And is appointed unto men once to die, but after this is a judgment. Okay, we're going to die. There will be a judgment. Verse 28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He was offered once for all. Hebrews 10.10, By the which we were sanctified through the offering of the body of of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest standeth daily ministering, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of, at the right hand of God. Do you know what he's saying when he sits down? He's saying it's done. There's no more work to be done. They were up and down all the time, constantly offering sacrifices. It is all done. It is, he is sufficient. His death is victorious. Uh, the sacrifices, they always fell short. And so, since Jesus is superior and his death atonement is sufficient, radical faith is to be expected. And this is how this sermon in the book of Hebrews concludes. From chapter 10, sorry, verse 19 to the end of the book, it, it speaks about what it means to live a life of faith. When you believe the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, this is how you ought to live. And it demands everything. It's not an easy life. Um, you will see in a moment some of the examples. Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. Example after example of people being called to give up everything because they have faith in God. To be willing to kill their sons because they have faith in God to be willing to leave their homelands because they have faith in God, to be willing to give up everything that was important to them on this earth because of their faith. See, the faith, it demanded everything. But true faith, in light of who Jesus is, is radical. It demands a lot. It demands everything. So that is the purpose of the book. Here's the outline of the book. Um, It's chapter 1 to chapter 10, verses 18, speaks of the superiority of Christ. We've gone through all those points that Jesus is better than the old revelation of God. And when I say better than the old revelation of God, he's just a, a fuller revelation of God. In chapters five, sorry, chapter 1, verse 5, to chapter 2, verse 18, he's better than the angels. He goes on, better than Moses, better than the Aaronic priesthood, better than the old covenant, better than the old sanctuary, and better than the sacrifices. Then chapter 10, verses 19 to 13, verse 25, is a call to radical faith. He gives them a warning against turning back. He gives them examples of faith. He gives them the way of faith by looking unto Christ. And he gives them the works of faith. And that is the 
brief outline of the book. So the key verse of the book, and I think this verse kind of sums up what the author is saying in the book, is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Who, speaking of Jesus, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And that is what this book is about. How gloriously, glorious and wonderful Christ is and how he made atonement for us. Application of the book. Number one, seek what is best. Seek what is best. Uh, why would we go for anything else? If Jesus is so much better, if he's so much better than anything that, that Judaism had to offer, if he's so much better than anything that our world has to offer, and, and isn't he, I mean, throw something out there. Think of, think of anything that we could pursue and how temporal that is. And then think of the opportunity we have to pursue our creator God who loved us so much that he died for us, who was our father, who's adopted us as a ch- child. I mean, there are no reasons to, to pursue anything other than Christ. And yet we do. And so we must seek what is best. The truth is, I think we all have innate desire for what is best. Uh, when we think of raising your children, you don't think like, oh man, what's the most mediocre school I can get them in? You know? I really hope they're just an okay soccer player. Nobody, nobody hopes that. Now, when, when it happens, it's like, okay, if, if that's the best we can do, that's fine. But do you know what happens to us? Uh, we seek what is best naturally, but as soon as our desire is tested, as soon as it becomes uncomfortable or inconvenient, that's when we slowly say, oh, second best is okay. Um, okay, well, maybe I'll just fall in the middle of pack somewhere, as long as I'm okay. And I think what we allow ourselves to do in our Christian lives is to think, yeah, I want to seek what is best. I want to seek Jesus. I want to pursue him. I want to be obedient to him. I want to live a life of radical faith until it's a little bit difficult. And then we go, hmm, okay, what can I get by with? I mean, second best isn't bad, right? Middle of the pack, at least I won't stand out. Nobody think I'm crazy. Okay? Everybody thought Paul was crazy. No think I'm crazy. It would be great. Why would we ever pursue anything than what is best? Pursue Christ? That is best. Pursue a life of obedience? That is best. So let's get back to doing that. There are so many commands that are riddled throughout this book that really is a theological statement about who Jesus is and what he came for, right? And yet, it has implications. Hebrews 4.11 says, Let us labor. Hebrews 4.14 says, let us hold fast our profession. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Hebrews 6.1, let us go on to perfection or, or go on to completion, go on to maturity. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Hebrews 12, verse 1, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. 10.23, let us again hold fast profession of our faith without wavering. See, this, the author understood that pursuing what is best, it meant some work. It meant we had to do some things. We, need to, we needed to step out and, and act. Don't settle for less. Pursue what is best. Don't settle for less. Don't let your Christian life become a life where you've settled. 
after every warning in the book, he says, or every exhortation in the book, every, every truth in the book, he gives a warning, if you draw back, you're not really saved. He's, he's very serious about that. Because he wants to understand how foolish it is to settle. Do you remember what Simon Peter said when Jesus said, are, are you going to go away as well? He looked at his disciples, everybody's gone away, are you going to go away as well? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And if we believe that's true, then we've got no place else to go. So don't settle for anything less than a life of the pursuit of Jesus Christ. Number three, let faith produce faithfulness and maturity. And the point there is that I have no doubt that at one point there are many believers that this author is writing to. And he's concerned about the fact that they seem to be slipping in their faith, that they seem to be slipping back into Judaism. I have no doubt that many of them at one point were excited about their faith. It was real to them. You know, they, they just, they just, they were all about Jesus. It was the cool thing to do, right? And yet, he's writing to tell them that, that true faith, real faith, produces faithfulness. In chapter 5, he's upset with them because he, you had faith at the beginning, but you're just not growing. There's a lot of these things that I'm trying to teach you. I have to teach you them again. At this point, you should be teachers. He says, mature, grow, be faithful. Don't just have a moment of faith. Don't just have an experience where you come to church and say, yes, this is right, I'm going to do it. Grow up, okay? Faithfulness. That is supposed to be the result of our faith. So let faith produce faithfulness and maturity. The author's purpose is to present the superiority and the sufficiency of Christ as the mediator of God's grace and to call believers to a radical faith in him. If this is true, if we believe that that is true, he's sufficient, that he's superior, that, that God's grace comes through him, then that means there is nowhere else to go. It means that there is nothing else we need that we have everything we need in him. And it means that we owe everything to him. And so, radical faith. Real faith. What faith is supposed to be, just put in action. Live it out.